The more I have observed division in the church, the more convinced I have become that the majority of divisions and departures are due to non-doctrinal reasons. We perceive false teaching as a danger to the church, and rightly so, given the time that Jesus, the apostles, and prophets spend addressing the topic. Paul spends two-thirds of the book of Galatians, a half of the book of Colossians, and one long chapter in 1 Corinthians confronting various false doctrines circulating among those congregations. Peter dedicates the second chapter of his second epistle describing the characteristics of false teachers, a warning that's echoed by Jude in his epistle. Jesus was also concerned about false prophets and false teachers, foreseeing their influences in things like the parable of the tares and warning his disciples elsewhere about imposters who would go so far as to claim they were him. So yes, false teaching is a danger. It does lead brethren astray but it is by no means the only influential cause for divisions and departures. There are other external factors at work in our age. For example, there is a strong anti-institutional impulse circulating throughout our culture and impacting churches across America. Martin Burry, a 20-year CIA analyst who specialized in media analysis, put forward a very interesting hypothesis in 2014. At the turn of the century, he noticed a trend. As the Internet gave rise to an explosion of information, there was a concurrent spike in political instability. The reason, he surmised, was that governments lost their monopoly on information and with their ability to control the public conversation. This led to what he calls a crisis of authority. As information became more widely available, people lost trust in institutions like government, newspapers, and churches. To be clear, Gurry is not suggesting that the truth is less valuable, nor is it less truthful. Rather, he hypothesizes that people no longer trust institutions to communicate the truth. It's a similar effect to the advent of the printing press in 1453, an invention that altered the course of history and Western civilization for all time by subverting and challenging the authority of the Catholic Church. And I believe we see this effect in the church. As the ease of access to information has increased, the church has been forced to confront an ever-broadening range of issues that are not necessarily doctrinal in nature. For example, over the last 20 to 25 years, have you noticed the significant increase in sermons, Bible studies, and general questions on topics like Christian apologetics, Bible archaeology, canonization, Bible translations, and I could go on. Why the sudden uptick? Because the Internet is awash in information about these topics. Not all of it's helpful, and the church has a responsibility to uphold the truth. However, unfortunately, this digital tidal wave has destabilized the faith of many, sowing seeds of doubt 
And we especially see that impact among the young. So developments in American culture, I believe, are undermining the credibility of the church in ways that are difficult to combat. And this is just one example of what I would consider a non-doctrinal element that is impacting the church and in part leading to divisions and departures. According to Paul, carnal thinking and carnal behavior is what leads to divisions and departures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 3, he says to the Corinthians, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? We learn in chapter 1 that the Corinthian church was divided into factions based on their preferences for various leading men in the church. Paul, Apollos, Peter. And as I read that first chapter of 1 Corinthians, I don't necessarily perceive the any evidence of false teaching in those divisions. Now, it's true later on in the book, in chapter 15, Paul spent some time addressing skepticism over the doctrine of a resurrection to come. But again, I don't have the sense that either that or any other false teaching was responsible for the divisions that he rebukes in chapter 1. Rather, I see a congregation that has fallen prey to human nature. Specifically, our carnal propensity for admiring intelligence or charisma and subsequently forming cults of personality. That's what divided Corinth. So the more I have observed divisions within and departures from the church, the more convinced I have become that the greatest potential for disunity lies within each one of us. That it's our failure to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires that leads to dysfunction and division within the body of Christ. Based on this conviction, I want to identify three ways in which our flesh disrupts the peaceful tranquility wrought by Christ on the cross. Number one, we divide on the basis of differences in personality. Number two, we divide out of allegiance to family rather than allegiance to the Lord. And number three, we divide in response to our carnal impulses of right and wrong. Divisions in the church are sometimes created on the basis of personality differences. There's a lot of different differences different descriptions of personality out there. I know we have some fans of the Myers-Briggs approach to personality types. I think you're in the audience this evening. You don't have to raise your hands. I like the big five personality types myself. This explanation makes a lot of sense to me. These categories were arrived at by surveying thousands of people, answering hundreds of questions across many cultures, although there is some dispute in the psychological community as to whether or not these describe anything outside of Western civilization. But anyways, these surveys went out, thousands of people answered these questions, and those answers were processed by computers to discern patterns. Five big patterns of personality emerged. 
extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. There's a lot of interesting observations that come as a result of this particular conceptualization, but I'd like to focus on two of these categories this evening because I think it pertains to the topic at hand. I'd like to talk with you about conscientiousness and openness. Here's what we learn when we apply these two to political leanings, for example. Those who lean right, your right, my left, those who lean right tend to score high in conscientiousness. Conscientiousness involves self-control, industriousness, responsibility, and reliability. It involves the tendency to be organized, hardworking, goal-directed, and to adhere to norms and rules. So folks on the right tend to score high in conscientiousness. Folks on the left tend to score high in openness. Those who are more open are more likely to seek out a variety of experiences, to be comfortable with the unfamiliar and pay attention to their inner feelings. They tend to exhibit high levels of curiosity and often enjoy being surprised. Thomas Sowell, in his book, A Conflict of Visions, describes these tendencies in this way. He contrasts the constrained versus the unconstrained. Or in the terms that I've just laid out, those who lean right score high in conscientiousness. Those who lean left score high in openness. But we don't need to resort to politics to see the differences in personality. Here's another example. Entrepreneurs score high in openness while those who eventually take over the business score high in conscientiousness. You need open people to start a business. You need conscientious people to run it. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm committing the sin of mixing politics and religion, right? I'm talking about this because we can see these tendencies at work in the church, brothers and sisters. Absolutely we can. Some of us find comfort in procedure. We like things done decently and in order because God is not the author of confusion. We feel reassured when doctrinal issues are worked out to find details. Many of us are high in conscientiousness. And some of us are high in openness. Others like exploring new ideas. Our creative juices flow when we experience new approaches to well-worn traditions. We're more concerned with big picture concepts like love and grace. How people feel and how we feel matters a lot. Some of us would score very high in openness. Which leads me to a question. What do we need in the church? Does the church need folks who score higher in conscientiousness or higher in openness? Well, the answer is yes. The gospel has not been tailor-made for just one personality type. The gospel is designed to save people of all personality types. But what has tended to happen historically? is those who score higher in conscientiousness drive away those who score higher in openness. 
those who are high in openness interpret the conscientious as being pharisaical, trapped in man-made tradition, victims of legalism. While those on the other side who are high in conscientiousness interpret the open as being liberal, unsound, and in danger of going astray or leading the church astray. Now, these tendencies are by no means a new phenomenon. Religious history records the tensions between Pharisees and Sadducees, between legalism and antinomianism, between grace and law, between the Judaizers and the Nicolaitans. Those tensions have always been in place. And the fact is, both groups have a point. But when we act in this way, we're acting on carnal impulses. These personality traits are powerful and insightful, but they are descriptions of human tendencies. They are inherently carnal. Consequently, when we allow ourselves to be guided by these impulses, we are behaving like mere men. Here's the bottom line. There's room in the kingdom of God for everyone. And we need to find a way to work together without compromising the truth in the process. And each side can help the other if we will allow it. High and openness people like me need the conscientious among us to help us remain anchored lest we drift too far from the scripture. And high in conscientiousness, folks, need those who are open to reassess traditions and explore areas of liberty in order to stave off ossification and stagnation. Learning to appreciate each other's strengths, seeing ourselves as incomplete and inadequate vessels of service beset by our own weaknesses, and recognizing the benefit of diverse personalities within the body of Christ are all essential attitudes. This is what we need, brethren, in the church. We need to find a way to work together. The second reason I see for division within the church is because family allegiance is more important than allegiance to the Lord. I've got some hard things to hear, but I'll ask you just to listen. Mark 3 records an insightful episode in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is creating quite a stir in his home region. He's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, he's performing remarkable signs, he's challenging the Pharisees and the scribes. But Mark tells us in chapter 3, verse 21, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. His own people is how the New King James translates that Greek phrase. Other translations are a little bit more specific. They translated his friends or his family. Those closest to Jesus had come to believe he was out of his mind. That explains Jesus' response in verses 31 through 35. His brothers and his mothers come to him. They're standing outside. They're calling to him. The multitudes are sitting around him. They report this to Jesus. And Jesus asks, 
Who is my mother or who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother, my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus publicly disowns his family. He just publicly disowned his family. Why would he do this? Because he was carrying out the will of his heavenly father. And his family thought he was crazy for doing so. When a Christian chooses to follow the Lord and his or her her family does not, Jesus shows us how to respond. Those who do the will of God are my family. It disturbs me when I see an entire extended family, fathers, mothers, children, grandchildren, leave a congregation when there's internal strife. I've not been doing this work for that long, and I've seen it happen more than once. Now, God alone knows the hearts, and he alone should judge such situations. But I confess I am left to wonder, was the mass departure really about what was right? Was it about remaining faithful to the Lord? Or was it about maintaining peace in the family or loyalty to one another? I want to be charitable and I want to think the best about folks. But the fact is, in too many of these situations, blood runs thicker than the water. Blood runs thicker than the water. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus makes it clear to his apostles, he was here to bring about division. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. These are among the toughest words Jesus ever spoke because they cut right to the heart of our most intimate relationships. Few things in the world are more important than family. But if given the choice between doing what we know to be right and keeping our relationships with family intact, there's no other choice to make, not as far as I can tell. I recently had a Pakistani woman comment on a video about Satan on my YouTube channel. This is what she said. Pakistani Christian here. Absolutely love this video. Thanks for uploading. I don't know anything about this woman. These three sentences are all she wrote. I don't know anything about her story. But judging by the region of the world she's from, I wonder what she's had to sacrifice in order to follow after Jesus. In, mo- in the most ra- pardon me, in the most radical Muslim families, a convert is locked in a room and given three days to return to Islam. If they refuse, they are slaughtered. If they escape, they will be hunted by family for years. If children are involved when a husband comes to Jesus. They are considered illegitimate because they no longer have a Muslim father. They are either given to another family member or killed. 
In a less religious family, the convert may be taken to the imam, who may lead the family in beating the believer. If the convert is a woman, her family may force her to marry a Muslim cousin to avoid shame and scandal. Many have been restrained with ropes, burned with acid or hot oil, and subjected to electric shocks. Sometimes families commit converts to mental institutions thinking that leaving Islam is a sign of insanity. Others are forced to leave the family, the home, and the community they know. Again, I know nothing about this woman or her story, but she's from Pakistan. Right in the heart of Allah country, if you want to call it that. Who knows what she's given up and sacrificed. Thankfully, none of us have had to face these sorts of ramifications to follow after Christ. But even though the stakes are lower, brothers and sisters, the eternal stakes are the same. The stakes at present in our country are not that high. But the eternal stakes are the same. Put Christ and his kingdom first in this life or jeopardize our eternity. The stakes are the same. The third reason for division that I see in the church is a carnal impulse to discern right and wrong. Have you ever been in a situation in church or in school or at work or listening to a news broadcast where an idea has been proposed and you have a sinking feeling, but you don't know why. You have a sense that what has just been said is wrong, but you don't know why you have that sense. After a few minutes or hours or days, you come up with an explanation as to why you felt that way. The process I just described is how we naturally discern right from wrong. We intuit something is wrong. We make a moral judgment. And then we come up with an explanation afterwards as to why it's wrong. Now, in our minds, we think that explanation is what led to the intuition and the moral judgment. But quite frankly, it's not. We're operating by the flesh. By nature, we feel something is wrong, and then we come up with the explanation as to why it's wrong. We want to believe that reason, fact, and truth lead us to moral judgments. But the fact is, feelings play a much bigger part in this than either we realize or we care to admit. Now, sometimes that sinking feeling, that intuition, is correct. That negative feeling that's welling up inside of us is an accurate response to what's been presented to us. But sometimes those intuitions are incorrect, which is one reason why Scripture warns us about following our intuitions. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Jeremiah 17, 9, Proverbs 14 and 12. 
We want to think that reason, facts, logic leads us to these conclusions. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's the feelings that well up inside of us that lead us to a moral judgment. So how might that impact the church? How might that impact the unity of the body of Christ? Well, let's take an example. What if our moral intuitions have been influenced by our personality type? We talked about conscientiousness and openness. For example, let's consider how a person who scores high in openness and low in conscientiousness, how that person might respond to a discussion of marriage, divorce, and remarriage scenarios in a public public Bible study. This person quietly listens as some of the brethren feel the need to entertain various hypotheticals or actual examples of divorce, remarriage scenarios, gauging whether or not these things are acceptable in God's eyes. And as she's listening, this whole discussion is just making her very uneasy. She's feeling very uneasy as she listens to brethren try and work these things out to their finest detail. Later in the day, as she reflects back on what's happening in that moment, she decides that the brethren were acting in a pharisaical way by making judgment calls which lack both authority and biblical precedent. Now, she never stops to think that Some people need to do this for whatever reason. They have an inherent tendency to formalize and categorize tendencies that cut against the grain of her personality. And that feeling of uneasiness that she was experiencing has as much to do with the clash between her personality and their personality as it does with convictions about right and wrong. But she's offended. She's decided that this was wrong. So it's time to visit the church on the other side of town because a change of scenery and a new experience is just what she needs to reinvigorate her relationship with the Lord. Now, depending on your disposition, you may favor one side of this explanation over the other. But it seems to me there's enough blame to go around in this situation. My purpose in raising this hypothetical is to urge us all to take great care in how we arrive at moral judgments. In a moment when I feel an inexplicable sense of uneasiness over something said which seems intuitively wrong, and I arrive at a conclusion as to why I have that feeling, am I certain that my conclusion is in fact the reason why I'm feeling uneasy. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And take it a step further. Why do we assume in such cases that the fault lies entirely with other people? Why do we refuse to consider how our own weaknesses might be contributing to the problem? And I can think of other examples how these moral intuitions could lead us 
to division and departure. What if we were raised in a different religious tradition? We come to the church later on in life, but we were raised in a different religious tradition. Could the long-term impact of being in that different denomination, that different environment, could that not influence those feelings of right and wrong that we have deep down inside? Or maybe we have a deep-seated need for control. And we allow that to guide what we intuit to be right and wrong across a spectrum of encounters and problems. Is it possible that our love for family is making those feelings just rage inside of us? And that leads us to impulsive, passionate responses. Brethren, beware. Beware of these moral impulses. Something may feel wrong. We may be inclined to explain it to ourselves why it feels wrong. But those explanations are not necessarily truthful. And those impulses are not necessarily a reflection of what is really right and wrong. Be patient. Be circumspect. Listen carefully to the other side. Always assume the other person has something to teach you. You may not like it. You still may not like it. But ask yourself, why? Why do I not like it? In the course of time, with the Lord's help, you may decide, yeah, what they're saying is wrong. I don't agree with it. But you also may discover in the course of time that you were wrong. And in doing so, you will save yourself and the congregation a whole lot of trouble. I have one last thing to say, and then I'll draw this lesson to a close. Oftentimes, those who depart from the church will defend themselves and their decisions with Scripture and with what seems to be very valid reasons. And their reasons may seem justified to an outside observer. But I have become very skeptical of people's explanations of why they leave the church. Let me give you one example from a long time ago in a church far, far away. I was helping the congregation by teaching their Bible study one morning. It just so happened that they were ready to study 1 Corinthians 5. I did not know the congregation very well. So I did not anticipate that there was someone sitting in the audience that morning a visitor, this person had been withdrawn from many, many years ago, decades upon decades ago. As I was teaching 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and talking about church discipline, she decided to speak up. She shared her experience and laid out a scenario that put the elders who had withdrawn from her in a very bad light. Most of these people are dead, so I feel okay sharing this. This explanation put the elders who withdrew from her in a very bad light. But it just so happened as she was going through her explanation that someone who had been in the congregation at that time, who had lived through this episode, they were present that morning. And they spoke up and said, yes, so-and-so, but you weren't living the right way. And you know it. You weren't living the right way. And you know it. 
Maybe this errant sister was right. Maybe the elders handled it poorly. I don't know. But I have since learned that the one who corrected her publicly was right. This woman was living in sin. And the church needed to act in order to spur her repentance. And if you think about it, both of these things can be true. The elders may have executed church discipline poorly, and this sister's actions necessitated church discipline. Both of those things can be true. They're not mutually exclusive. This example illustrates one of the dangers of explaining things later on. We tend to paint ourselves and our decisions in the best light possible. So I've become very skeptical for this reason and a lot of other reasons of people's explanations as to why they leave the church. I've had people, I've heard of people saying, I left the church because they were a bunch of Pharisees coming back later on in life to say, nope, that wasn't it at all. I just wanted to leave. We talk to people who aren't with us anymore. We hear their reasons. Brethren, there's lots of reasons to be skeptical of those explanations. As I draw this to a close, I'll leave you with this thought. Without question, there are moments. There are moments when the truth is at stake. When doctrine cannot be compromised And when those who love the truth must turn away from those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. But I believe more often than not, 1 Corinthians 3.3 is the real explanation for why folks divide and depart. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Let's not put lipstick on this pig by trying to convince ourselves or others that we are no longer in fellowship with some people because we chose Christ and they did not. I rather suspect the reasons why are far less noble and are of little credit to either side. Instead, let us all take seriously the impulses of the flesh that are at work within us And let's beg God to help us nail those impulses to the cross with Jesus Christ. We may not be able to repair the damage that's been done in the past, but we may avoid wounding the church in the future. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. If you're here this evening and you are not a member of the Lord's body, we are going to extend the gospel invitation. If something's been said today that has convicted you, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you are ready to have your sins washed away by His blood in the waters of baptism, you are prepared to confess before this audience of people this evening, that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. If you're ready to turn away from sin and turn toward God, if you're ready to do that, we want to help you. Or if you've fallen off the path and you need help getting back on straight and narrow way, 
We're here to help you. We're here to help one another get to heaven. That's one, one part of the church's mission. So if we can help you obey the gospel this evening or write your relationship with the Lord, please let us know how as we stand and sing.